Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. This week's episode comes to you from the West Wing of the White House and the office of Susan Rice. The National Security Advisor to President Obama and I covered a lot of ground. Syria, Russia, Benghazi, race, the talk, how she met her husband, and whether she's played basketball with the president. We had just 20 minutes with Ambassador Rice, but you can hear it all right now. Ambassador Rice, thanks so much for being on Cape Up. It's good to be with you, Jonathan. So there's this tradition um, of the outgoing president leaving a letter for his successor. Does it, something like that happen between national security advisors? No, because if uh, the transition is working as it should be, I will have had the opportunity to spend hours sitting down probably at this very table uh, with my successor. Uh, I will have shared reams of paper and briefing materials um, and had the opportunity to, to go through in depth my best assessment of what would be most helpful for my successor to have at his fingertips. Mm-hmm. And and what are the three things that will occupy the incoming national security advisor's time? And to broad, you know, broadly speaking. Three things? Three things. Why do you think there are only three? Well, I'm just trying to limit I it. We don't have that luxury. much time. I wish I had the luxury of only three things occupying my time. Well, the three, like top of... Top of my North Korea, Russia, China, Syria, all ISIS, of the above. All of the there's not one. The challenge in this job, Jonathan, and the challenge in national security policy making in the current context is we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We've got multiple uh, opportunities out there and multiple challenges. And any uh, national security advisor worth his or her salt has to be able to manage uh, and lead on those myriad of issues simultaneously. So obviously there's some uh, particularly pressing things. The most sacred responsibility that anybody in my office has is doing their utmost to keep the American people safe. So the counterterrorism mission, the homeland security mission, the counter-ISIL and counter-Al-Qaeda missions are uh, critical. But that's by no means sufficient because we do live in a world in which uh, we have challenges that emanate from Russia, from North Korea, uh, from the larger instability in the Middle East, in particular in, in Syria and Iraq. Um, and we have uh, concerns in places like South Sudan, where there's a risk of mass atrocities. We have interests in all of Asia, to which we have rebalanced and, and focused a great deal of uh, economic security and diplomatic attention. Uh, we care about what happens in our own hemisphere. So we have to do many different things simultaneously and uh, keep our eye on all of these things and devise uh, effective policies to the greatest extent possible across a range of challenges. Wow. I mean, you basically walked us around the globe in in that answer. I want to just zero in on a, on a couple of those. I mean, you mentioned China and you mentioned Russia. Should the American people be concerned about the Russians, given what we've seen just in the last few months? Well, Rem- Russia has been and remains uh, a serious uh, challenge across a number of dimensions. It's a country with which we have worked cooperatively on a number of issues. For example, the Iran nuclear deal, um, nuclear stockpile reductions, um, even uh, uh, on global issues like uh, many of the issues that I used to work with on a daily basis in, in the UN are issues on which we have 
manage to cooperate with Russia and need to cooperate with Russia. On the other hand, they are a formidable military power with, uh, I think, still growing and nationalist ambitions. They have annexed uh, illegally Crimea from the Ukraine and still threaten eastern Ukraine. Um, and they're behaving in an absolutely horrific and unconscionable way in Syria with their relentless bombing uh, campaign to back up a, a dictator. So we have very profound differences with Russia and very good reasons to be concerned about Russian behavior and Russian intentions. On the other hand, uh, Russia is sufficiently important and instrumental in dealing with a range of global and regional challenges that we don't have the luxury of ignoring it. Mm-hmm. And where we can, we have to try to work with it. So it's a difficult balancing act. You mentioned working with Russia in in Syria, and you were the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs under President Clinton. The Rwandan genocide happened then. Today, President Obama is facing a similar, similarly horrifying situation with what's happening to the Syrian people under Bashar al-Assad. From where you sit, what are the similarities and differences in the response and uh, the presidential response and the circumstances surrounding them? Well, these are, they're very different circumstances, uh, Jonathan, both horrific. The Rwandan genocide uh, lasted a mere 100 days and up to a million people were killed hand to hand, house to house with machetes in a very organized and uh, systematic fashion. And it was a crisis that outpaced uh, the will and the capacity of the countries in the region and the larger international community to respond effectively. Syria is quite a different situation. This is a civil war uh, that has morphed into a regional conflict uh, and, a, and to some extent a proxy war uh, between the Assad regime and its adversaries. Um, it, the, those that have died have not died uh, through a systematic genocide, but rather uh, through horrific violence perpetrated primarily by the government and its backers, but also by the opposition. Uh, And to complicate things further in Syria, uh, we have the establishment of of ISIL, as we call it, the Islamic State in the uh, Iraq and the Levant. Um, And we have uh, al-Qaeda present. And these are two very proximate adversaries for the United States and our allies in uh, the coalition because they pose a direct threat to Europe, to the United States, and, and to various others. So we, are, we have intervened in Iraq and Syria, in Iraq with the invitation of the government, in Syria out of necessity uh, to deal with the ISIL threat and the al-Qaeda threat to the United States and our allies. We have not intervened in the civil war except through our support to opposition uh, partners and forces, our humanitarian assistance, which totals well over $5 billion uh, and makes us the largest donor to the humanitarian crisis. That was $5 billion. Billion with a B, yes. Uh, And this has lasted over five years, um, and we have multiple challenges and multiple interests. Our primary interest is dealing with the terrorist threat and eliminating it before... Uh, it can do grave damage uh, or further damage uh, to our allies and partners or to Americans themselves. We also have a deep and abiding humanitarian interest, and that's why we have tried to invest in providing relief to the people of Syria, to the refugees and the displaced, to the neighboring countries who are harboring um, millions of refugees. But it's also why we've invested so much diplomatic energy uh, in trying to broker uh, a lasting end to the violence, humanitarian access, and ultimately a negotiated diplomatic solution. We've worked tirelessly 
with the Russians and many other partners to try to accomplish that. Uh, and fortunate, unfortunately, thus far, to little avail. So it's a very different uh, set of circumstances, both horrific, um, but um, the latter in Syria, um, we believe is, is potentially amenable to a diplomatic solution. Um, we've worked very, very hard uh, to achieve that. Uh, and in our estimation, the blame for its failure rests substantially with the, the regime in Syria and its backers in Russia and Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to re- relitigate, relitigate the past, but um, I have to ask you about September 16th, 2012. Uh, that was when you were on the Sunday shows. Uh, it was just after um, the attack on Benghazi happened. Is there anything, if you could go back in time, is there anything you would have done differently? Well, first of all, Jonathan, as I've said in in many contexts and on many occasions, um, I was asked by the White House when I was then the ambassador to the United Nations if I would um, appear on the Sunday shows and represent the administration, as I'd done many times in the past and done many times subsequently. The news of the week, as people tend to forget now, was not only Benghazi, uh, it was uh, the attacks around the world on our diplomatic facilities from Africa to Afghanistan to parts of, uh, of Asia. And uh, that was a substantial part of the context. And, and so was the fact that in uh, the, the coming days, the UN General Assembly, the annual gathering mm-hmm. of heads of state was about to occur. So I was on these shows talking about the attacks on the embassies, Benghazi, uh, Iran, and Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, upcoming visit to uh, the United States. I was asked about Benghazi, and I gave, as I said at the time, the best information that the U.S. intelligence community had at the time. I said that uh, it was liable to change; that this was our best current assessment. Um, and I guess if I have any uh, regret, uh, I might, in retrospect, have taken my mother's advice and not gone on the Sunday shows. <laughs> right, and I and I have here for my own reference. Um, because it's been released, those talking points, and if only people had paid attention to what you actually said, um, maybe a lot of the stuff that uh, you had to go through wouldn't have happened. Well, I don't know if it was that they didn't pay attention or they chose not to hear what I said, because, uh, and this is something we can uh, discuss uh, and debate at at length, but I think, as you know, uh, I have uh, answered these questions lots of times, including, frankly, in front of uh, the so-called Benghazi uh, committee uh, of Congress. Which one? Which one? <laughs> the last one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which one of the seven? Yes, right. Exactly. Um, the one that took the longest and, and went out with a whimper rather right. than a bang. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, and, and all of the investigations have validated this, that these were the intelligence communities um, produced points. They were their best understanding of what had happened at the time. I was careful to say that this was preliminary and could change. And indeed, um, some days after I went on the Sunday shows, their assessment did change. But at the time, that was what we could say. And sometimes people have asked, well, why didn't I insert my own opinion or judgment into what had happened? And my answer to that is that would have been completely inappropriate for me to make up my own judgment and share it on the fly mm-hmm. if it was in contravention of what our experts had at that point, determined. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up was one, not only to ask you about that particular moment in time, but also the reaction, I remember, from the Congressional Black Caucus was to send a letter uh, to um, 
their colleagues arguing that the treatment of you by those senators was um, raising the question whether race played a factor. They were mostly white men. And as we pointed out on, on the editorial page, they were from mostly from states in the Confederacy. Do you think race played a role in what turned out to be their ultimate objective, and that was to keep you, keep President Obama from naming you as uh, Secretary of State? Well, Jonathan, I'm not sure that was their primary objective when this started. Remember, we were in the middle of a, an election campaign, uh, and I think uh, whatever the motivations and to the extent that they were political, I don't think they related to me in the first instance. So let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Uh, secondly, to be candid, I don't attribute this to race. I attribute it to partisan politics. Uh, you know, this could have happened in, in much the same way if I were a white male. Um, and I think for some of my colleagues who also felt they were unfairly uh, treated in the context of Benghazi, most of them were white males. So I don't think that's the, the principal um, variable, although I must say I was grateful for the support not only of the Congressional Black Caucus, but many, many, many members of Congress um, in both houses. Um, our late friend Gwen Eiffel uh, said in a speech once, it is important to be reminded how easily we can be denied simple, obvious opportunity, how, how low the ceilings can get, and how much fortitude it takes to refuse to accept the limits that others place on you. And like Gwen, you're an African, African-American woman who occupies rarefied air. How much fortitude does it take for you to refuse to accept the limits that others place on you? That's a great question. And uh, I can't help but take a minute just to say how much I miss Gwen. Um, what an incredible uh, human being and journalist and just friend. Leaving that aside just for a second, uh, to, to try to answer your question. I, mean, I feel very, very fortunate that uh, as a, a child of the 1960s, born in 1964, uh, two African-American parents uh, here in Washington, D.C. My father served in the segregated army in World War II at Tuskegee. Um, yeah, he was a Tuskegee Airman, right? Yes, he was. Um, and um, my mom grew up in, in Maine, but also uh, in a period of, uh, of, of segregation, even though that wasn't her direct experience. I was raised um, by these parents to believe that I could do whatever I set out to do. And that there weren't limits uh, except those uh, of my own abilities. And that was an incredible gift they gave me uh, and gave me, I think, early in the window in which uh, any parent could credibly pass on uh, such lessons to a child in our country. And I benefited enormously from parents who believed in me, who challenged me, encouraged me, and literally raised me to believe that I didn't face limits. And I've been um, bold enough to believe that ever since. I'm looking over your shoulder. There are pictures of your of your family. And I'm looking at the picture of your son. And I'm wondering, given the conversations that this nation has been through over the last couple of years in, in terms of the talk, have you had the talk uh, with your son? The talk about race and being a black man in America or which, which talk That's are we exactly talking That's exactly the talk. No, well, yes, exactly that talk. Yes. Um, but I think Jonathan is, is, you will see from the photographs behind you, my children are interracial. My husband is white. And um, my children, my daughter in particular, uh, in many contexts, be mistaken as other than African-American or are even mixed. 
Um, my son looks like he could be anything from uh, African-American to Hispanic to Jewish to Arab. And so he's kind of hard to put in any particular box by just looking at him. But of course, uh, I've had that discussion with my son. He's a teenage boy. And although he's lived a, a relatively sheltered life, he's, you know, he's a man in this world. And uh, I, w- I think any child, frankly, black or white, male or female, needs to understand that uh, we live in a context in which they have to be careful and mindful of how they treat other people, how people perceive them. And that in many contexts, particularly for a black boy, intentions and uh, responses to intentions can be grossly misinterpreted and dangerously so on occasion. Now, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned your husband, Ian. How'd you guys meet? We met in college. Uh, we lived in the same uh, dormitory at Stanford University. Uh, and I was a freshman and he was a senior. Uh, and he would say that he had the foresight to find me before uh, it was popular. <laughs> <laughs> But we met, we met when I was uh, young. I was 17, almost uh, just about to turn 18. And so he approached you or you approached him? He approached me. And had you seen him before? Well, so or? you really want to go there. I well, mean, this of course. Was, <laughs> Why ask this, the question if I'm not going to get this? So we lived in the same dormitory. Uh, as I said, I was a freshman. We met within the first week of my freshman year. And uh, we met at one of these early events where the upperclassmen in the dormitory threw a sort of social event. I think it was a, an ice cream social, to be particular, um, for the freshmen. So I was, you know, fresh out of Washington, D.C., moving to California. I'd come from an all-girls school. Here I am in a co-ed environment, and I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't looking to, to, you know, go out with the first guy I met. Um, and indeed, I didn't. But he approached me <laughs> at uh, at this ice cream social, and uh, we started talking. Had a great conversation. He asked me out a few times, and uh, after a respectable period of enjoying my freedom, I decided to to start going out with him. Mm-hmm. So, in college, you played sports. No, I played sports in high school. In high school. But you played basketball. I played basketball in high school and tennis. Uh, I hacked around in college, but didn't play any varsity sports at Stanford. My skills would never okay, so allow my, that. Okay, so my next question m- means nothing. You've never played basketball with the president. I, but the, these are two different issues. Whether <laughs> I played at college or played with basketball with the president. So but no, have. I am smart enough not to play basketball with the president. <laughs> uh, and la- last question, because you, you are a busy person um, and there's a buzz of activity around here uh, in your office. Your favorite leader over the last eight years Foreign leader? What do you mean? Foreign leader? leader, yes. Foreign leader. Not including the president of the United States? Well, I, yes. <laughs> no, That's what I mean. He would be my favorite. Of but course. if you're looking for a, a less obvious answer, seriously? Yeah, I'm serious. <sighs> um, That's interesting. Probably Angela Merkel. I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were going to say Merkel. You know why? Why? She's just so down to earth and real. She's smart. Uh, she's direct. Uh, she doesn't beat around the bush. She's unpretentious. Um, and she's, she's a good human being. Uh, and she's been a phenomenal head of state. And it's really nice to see uh, a woman play the sort of strong leadership role that she has. 
But I think they're, you know, she'd be the number one, mm-hmm. and certainly number one of sitting leaders as we speak today, mm-hmm. other than, of course, my boss. Right. Um, but uh, there are others. Uh, and I, Give if me the, another one. I mean, I admire Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Canadian uh, Prime Minister. Obviously, yeah, Canadian Prime Minister. Not, uh, not nearly as experienced, and, and, uh, but, but fresh and um, very nice person, um, good heart. Uh, I think a, a very progressive vision um, for Canada, uh, a country that I have uh, a lot of affection for. Mm-hmm. I think he's restored Canada's position on the global stage to being the progressive and, and uh, principled leader that uh, his father and, and his father's successors enabled Canada to uh, become, and, and I think sadly for some period wasn't. So, uh, you know, I find him uh, interesting and uh and exciting, and there, you know, I, if if I had more time, I'd scour the the, the planet and give you a few others. But uh, well, I'll let you I'll let you off the hook and not ask you, you know, who who you've done shots with and you know hung out at the bar with, because I know it's happened. Come on, no comment. And on that note, <laughs> Ambassador Susan Rice, National Security Advisor to President Obama, thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.